everybody. Welcome back to Fabulous. Hi, everyone. I'm Shannon Payne. And I'm Elizabeth Taylor. We're breaking into the holiday season. Oof. Um, I don't know what holidays you're up to, but whatever your winter holidays are, I'm pretty sure you've also heard about Charles Dickens. I feel like that's true. So we're hoping you'll let this slide. Please? <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. It's a great story. I, I stumbled upon, like, one of his letters. And it made me laugh. I think he's so so funny. It started a whole situation for me (laughs) where I had to explore this man's life through his letters. Um, I hope his letters are the same way, because when I was reading through uh, my story for the week, I love he puts commas in all over the place. All over the place. And then like sentences that go on forever. And it's like, now I know exactly how you want me to hear it in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he's giving me stage direction for the mm-hmm. for the dialogue. And I really like that. I'm for it. I'm so <laughs> on board with it. I don't care if it's gratuitous. I need it. I appreciate it. <laughs> he was writing for me and he didn't know me. <laughs> it was really sweet of him. It was. Truly kind. Truly, truly kind. I've never read any of his letters before. I haven't either. Like I said, it was, it was, I was like a month ago and I was like, I'm putting this in the back burner because I think this is a cool idea. <laughs> and over the last couple of weeks, I've just, I've read a bunch of them and it just, I was like, yes, this is it. This is the episode. This is what I want to do. That's so great. <laughs> so much fun. It is so fun when you get like really excited about your topic, mm-hmm. you know? I, I might've gotten a, a little overly excited. We'll find out. <laughs> Can't wait. It's fine. <laughs> It's going to be cool. Oh, oh, I wanted to tell you and everybody else. Yes. Um, so remember when we were talking about the the gardens at Versailles, the ones that aren't that aren't there anymore yeah. in our hedge mazes episode? Uh-huh. And you talked about the statues at the beginning of Aesop and... And... Uh, it's an animal. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it's not. It's Cupid. That's right. Sorry, my brain was struggling with that one. They still have... Those two statues. Do they really? And like 40 of the animals that were all over in the fountains. Oh, my God. And they brought them inside to one of the rooms in the palace. <gasps> so I took pictures of them for you. That's amazing. I'll post about them. <laughs> I was like, these are Shannon's statues. She said this. <laughs> oh, my God. Aesop looks so grumpy. Really? He looks like a little troll. <laughs> I can't wait. But he's in like a cute, his hat looks, I don't know what it's called. It's like, it looks like. Like a little, a little baker. It's a, it's a mix hat. between a baker hat and a newsboy hat and a beret. It's not a good look. It's silly. <laughs> and its bow looks like a bookmark. Oh. I'll show you. Okay. I'm excited. This is going to be great. Because <laughs> I saw like some pictures, but I feel like it just doesn't do it the justice that I feel like you're going to do. And I'm so... I'm so excited. I'm so happy cool. you got to see it. <laughs> I get to because live vicariously through you. It was pouring, so we didn't walk through the gardens, which, okay. by the way, are twice the size of Central Park. Holy shit. They're massive. So we didn't do that. We just were inside the palace. And okay. then I learned that in the summertime, okay, I think it's every hour. I think it's every hour. Uh, there's like loud orchestra like <gasps> symphony music that plays along with a fountain show and all the no. fa- all the fountains do pretty dances <gasps> for the music for I a little bit. I love a fountain dance. Yeah. So I guess we all have to go in the summertime now. I think so. <laughs> I'm for it. We apparently have French vineyards to go explore so Absolutely. I'm on board. Let's make this happen. And I already think that I'm I've been ruined for bread forever yeah. and bread is like my favorite food mm. so it's been a, it's a rough transition. <laughs> It's it's gonna come back. It's gonna be fine. You'll forget all of the goodness, and your brain will be like, "No, this bread, this bread's 
this part's good. <laughs> There's a pastrami sandwich. Mm. A pastrami sandwich from Katz's Deli in New York. And whenever anybody brings it up, I get kind of angry. Oh, no. <laughs> because I can't have one right now. Yep. <laughs> or, or that we have our, our this restaurant in Leighton that was our favorite Italian restaurant. I don't know the names of things. Mm-hmm. Every time Seth brings it up, I'm like, why did you have to bring it up? Now I'm just hurt. Because they're closed forever. It's so dumb. So um, I guess I have too many emotions connected to food. I have a lot. I'm still sad to this day that one of my Thai restaurants is closed, so it's fine. I'm living. I'm surviving. And Bombay Bites. Mm, yeah. Where's every, where uh, People in the northern Utah, the greater Ogden area, will you text me where you're getting your Indian food? I need to know. I'm struggling. It's rough. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if they weren't making their, uh, what is the one that I get? Coconut. Chicken coconut korma. Mm, yeah. Maybe they weren't making it correctly. Correctly. Because when I get it other places, it's a little different. Yeah. Uh, whatever, whatever Bombay Bites specifically was doing. If you could find me someone who's doing that also. That'd be wonderful. <laughs> I would really like to eat that again. <laughs> now my heart just hurts. It's really sad. <laughs> so, COVID took a lot from us. Truly. Mostly the restaurants we loved. Mm-hmm. It was a hard time. It was a hard time. Do I want to get into it? I'm yeah, so depressed Yeah, let's talk about now. something else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about a time in England when no one had food. <laughs> oh, no. I'm just going to cry this whole episode. I heard this guy saying something like, what do you call it? Like the hungry 40s mm-hmm. about the 1840s. And I was like, that sounds like a bad decade. That doesn't sound great. What a bummer. What a real bummer. <laughs> oh, goodness. Anyways. Okay. Before I get started, I want to give a huge shout out to the Charles Dickens Museum in London because most of what I found was from them. So they have this huge collection of Charles Dickens letters that not only do have they like put pictures out there that you can look at, they've done like transcribing it oh, wow. for people like me who can't read very well. <laughs> that writing is tricky. That writing's tricky. tricky. And they've just got a whole lot of really great information. Someday when I go to London, which is going to happen, I want to go visit. They, Absolutely. their whole thing was delightful. So go check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. It, it's really cool. That it was a really like fun a sight. Blast. <sighs> All right. So many of us have gotten to know Charles Dickens as a person and a writer through his novels, Oliver Twist, David Copperfield, Great Expectations, A Christmas Carol. (laughs) (laughs) And this is just the tip of the iceberg of all his works. But out of all of his written works that we have, one thing never truly got done. And that was an autobiography. We have biographies, absolutely, but not a published self-reflection from Charles himself. Supposedly, Charles made frequent attempts at writing a diary, but apparently this is one of the few things that he and I will likely have in common because he wasn't very good at it. (laughs) He's like me where he would start it up and then like days later, it's done. I'm bored with this. (laughs) And then have 19 journals on the shelf with three pages in them. (laughs) Yeah. I think the most I got in one was like seven. (laughs) I'm really bad at journal. It's a hard thing to do. It's tough. In an unusual sense, though, we got an interesting and perhaps more realistic view into Dickens' life when the world discovered letters written by him to a wide variety of audiences. He frequently wrote to family, 
friends, publishers, fellow writers, and even the queen at one point. Oh, wow. A whole wide variety of people. In total, there are over 14,000 letters written by him that we're aware of. There's probably (laughs) more. Those are just the ones that we're aware of. He began his correspondence adventures in 1821 at the young age of nine and continued to write to the people in his life until the day before he died. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, correspondence is such a, I, we're going to regret that we stopped writing letters. I was already sad. Like I was reading through these and I was just, it was fun. Our I miss, group chats I miss are that. not going to yield the same results. No, it's not <laughs> quite the same. It's just not quite the same. History will not appreciate our gifts. No. Slash gifs. Yeah. I wanted to be inclusive. Yeah. <laughs> All I can think about is peanut butter. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. At the height of his popularity, Charles reported that he received between 60 and 80 letters a day. Oh, my gosh. How did he have time to write books? For real, though. For real, It would take me all day to read that many letters. All day to read them. And when work permitted, not only did he read them, he made it his goal to respond back to each and every one of them as soon as he possibly could. Wow. And he typically didn't have a secretary, so beyond, like, a few exceptions, he wrote each response himself. What a pen pal. Right? He sounds fun. I want him in my life. Gee, I hope he was like really into gossip. Oh, are they all about petty shit? Some of them are. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to go into all of them. I have a few of them, but some of them are super petty. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Oh, my goodness. So he considered it important to give personal response to those who took time to reach out to him. He typically wrote with a goose feather quill. And Percy Harrington Fitzgerald, one of Dickens' biographers, describes his handwriting as so prompt, so alert, finished and full of purpose and decision, legible also, but requiring familiarity and training to read, (laughs) (laughs) which was so fucking true. I tried reading some of the letters because some of like some of the sites that I went to before I found the delightful Charles Dickens Museum Mm -hmm. didn't have them like didn't have like transcriptions of it you can yeah. just like read it so i had to like try and decipher it like oh he thinks that's an a so i'll call it an a that's an a <laughs> it was wild so it's like it's not bad handwriting it's just a little tough to read if you're not familiar with him that's a that's a really interesting thing how we all like stylize letters like we can just make them ours right and the whole point of them is that we all use the same ones <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but we have to make it our own mm-hmm. every day <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness so i said the whole journal situation was the only thing that mr dickens and i have in common but there might actually be two. Ooh, <laughs> the fact that we have so many intact letters from charles it's actually kind of a miracle. See, even as a published writer, Charles was a bit of a self-conscious person. <laughs> and he really didn't like the idea of his letters being just out in the open for everybody to just check out and read. No. No. Oh, the good thing there's a fucking museum now. Good thing there's a museum. He actually Oof. burned all of the letters he received from other people to be nice to them. Oh, that's, that's kind. <laughs> and, and it's said that he asked the recipients of his letters to do the same. I have a devastating story about this. Oh, no. When I was in college, my job, the guy I worked for had the the letters and journals of his dad and his grandpa. Mm. And his dad had fought in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. His name was Jack and his wife's name was Hope. Okay. And they wrote letters back and forth to each other. And at some point, he saved every single letter that he, um, let me see which ones I had. That he wrote to her. Okay. 
but she burned all of hers to him. And I was, so I'm transcribing them all and he like had them printed into books. Yeah. And at one point they had both sides of all of these letters. Oh my God. And she got rid of all of hers. I was devastated. Oh my God. I was like, sure, you guys know your business, but what about me? What about me? me? I don't know who's writing this down and I need to know. (laughs) This isn't fair. It was really sad. It's really, really sad. So obviously they didn't listen to Charles and everybody kept their his letters. So sorry, Charles. <laughs> so when he was gone, no letters left in his house. Pretty much. But everybody, but had, everybody his. had his. Like that box of notes from your from junior high that Absolutely, are still under your that bed. That are still under your bed. They're still there. <laughs> wow. Can't trust anybody, can you? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. After the last few weeks, I'm grateful for it. You get to see an author unguarded, open to his audience, and however small it, that an audience was intended to be. Sometimes he was beautifully kind. Sometimes he was angry and harsh. But at the end of the day, you see him as the flawed and intelligent human that he was. So for today's episode, I'm going to tell you about a few major events in Dickens' life, and I'm going to sh- show it to you through the lens of his letters. Ooh, I'm excited. So we're definitely we're not going into a whole Dickens biography here. This is just a few portions of his life that we'll point out here and we get to hear him talk about them yeah that's it's really cool cool. it's really cool all right his early life so charles was born on february 7th 1812 in portsmouth england he was the second born of eight children in total to his parents john and elizabeth and from the very beginning life really wasn't that easy for charles financial stability was a constant struggle for his family the limited money that they did have to kind of go towards their children's ed- education didn't get spent on Charles. It was actually spent on his sister, <laughs> who oh. was more musically inclined. And they were like, yeah, sure, we can see this. This is easy to see. Let's further this. Yeah. Life only gets more difficult for Charles as he enters into his preteen years. His father actually ended up in prison when Charles was only 12 due to his inability to pay off certain debts. Yeah. And this is not the only time that this is going to happen in his life. Money being tight, the family saw no other choice but to send Charles to work at the local shoe polish factory, Warren's Blacking Warehouse. I was reading that he worked at a blacking factory and I was like, what What is that? that? (laughs) It's a shoe polish factory. (laughs) So his dad's in debtor's prison. His dad's in debtor's prison and he's he's working working long hours, like long hours and making about six shillings a week. And there's no labor laws. None. Nice. Yep. Eventually, his dad leverages some deals and makes his way out of prison with the idea that Charles would get to go back to being a kid and head back to school. Charles' mom had a different idea. Why not just keep working at Warren's? You're doing fine. You're doing great. Everything's wonderful. Ultimately, John and Charles went out and Charles starts school again at the Wellington House Academy. And within the year, Charles starts proving his literary prowess. In a letter to one of his classmates, Owen Thomas, Charles shows he's adept at wordplay, nuance, and word association. So I'm going (laughs) to read the letter. He says, Tom, I am quite ashamed I have not returned your leg, but you shall have it by Harry tomorrow. If you would like to purchase my clavis, you shall have it at a very reduced price. Cheaper in comparison than a leg. Yours, C. Dickens. Yes. (laughs) I suppose all this time you have had a wooden leg. I have weighed it every Saturday night. (laughs) so to give you guys some context for what's happening a leg at the time was kind of a slang word used to describe like 
a dictionary. Oh! And the clavis is a play on words that Dickens came up with. So he used it here as a as an iteration for like a different piece of what's the word I'm looking for? It's like not a dictionary. It's more like a a thesaurus, a thesaurus, or something. a glossary. So he's like, oh. "You gave me your dictionary. Here's my thesaurus." And he just used it as <laughs> he used the word clavis as a wordplay to say like leg, clavis, parts of the body. <laughs> He's doing this at 13. That's so cute. It's adorable. <laughs> it's super cute. As always, time moves on and Charles makes his way into adulthood. Throughout that transition comes a smattering of jobs that in many ways shapes his writing future. So in 1827, Charles becomes a law clerk at the firm of Ellis and Blackmore. Think of him as an intern. He's dropping off the documents, running the errands, filling the coffee cups. Mm-hmm. He's not a big man in charge. Two years later, in 1829, Charles decides a change of pace sounds nice and becomes a court stenographer, where he learns how to write in shorthand, which helps him in his next phase of his career. Mm -hmm. 1831, another two years later, Charles becomes a shorthand reporter with the Mirror of Parliament. With this job, he got to share all of the tea he observed from the House of Commons and the House of Lords. There's so much drama in there. There's so much drama. I've seen those bitches on TV. Absolutely. They're great. They're amazing. And he just got to write all about it. <laughs> Sounds like a dream, that to would be, be really honest. so handy. I can't even type as fast as people can write in shorthand. Right. So that's, that's super useful. It's super useful. He makes leaps in... To your births, apparently, because in 1833, Charles sees his first work published, an essay or sketch called A Dinner at Poplar Walk. He wrote additional sketches, but by 1836, his first novel, The Pickwick Papers, were being published in monthly installments. The pace just kept moving, and by 1842, Charles had produced four additional novels, including Oliver Twist. The year 1842, Charles decides to travel to the United States, and his reasons are primarily threefold. <laughs> First, do all of the touristy shit that the tourists do. When they imagine that the United States is the size of a regular country. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Two, find inspiration and do some research for future novel writing endeavors. Absolutely. <laughs> Third, petition the U.S. to incorporate an international copyright agreement. Fair's fair. Absolutely. We've seen people run into that trouble before. 100%. Yeah. And, like... See, this is when Charles's first novel was being compiled together. So the Pickwick Papers, they're being compiled together and published. And he starts to realize some serious bullshit's happening. (laughs) His book was getting printed without his permission in the U.S. and without him receiving any of the royalties from the sales. And as things stood, all of this was fine. All of this was totally legal. I'm... It's just, it's a big part of his life. It's a huge part of his life. he's incredibly successful and he's broke as hell. Yep. And it's very upsetting to me. It drives me bonkers. People could be so, um, pay your local artists for their work. Please. Because you know you appreciate it. You, you want to have it, it so in much. your house or as the background on your phone. Stop being a little asshole. And this is their living. Yeah. 100%. We don't want to live in a world without them. So no. we need to pay them so they can eat. Yes, please. The thing was, this wasn't just impacting Charles. American authors were also caught up in the fray, too. Yeah. Another of my personal favorites, suspense genius Edgar Allan Poe's literary works of art were actually having the same issues in England. And he also could have used a couple bucks. He could have used some money. (laughs) He was a 
It would have been nice, right? It would have been (laughs) nice. It would have been great. If Taylor Swift is proof of anything, is that you don't need to be starving to do good work. Truly. We could go ahead and pay people. It would be (laughs) phenomenal if we just chose to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So Charles tried. He fought the good fight, and he worked with Kentucky Senator Henry Clay to push the legislation forward. So in a letter to Henry from March 2nd, 1842, Charles makes a request, including with it a petition signed by 25 writers. Oh, wow. Nicely done. Absolutely. So he says, Dear Sir, a gentleman in New York named Saunders, who I believe prepared the accompanying petitions, begged me to forward them to you and to ask you to present one to the Senate and entrust the other to some member of Congress for presentation in the House of Representatives. When I had the pleasure of speaking with you yesterday, I quite forgot to mention this matter. I need scarcely say that I have a strong interest in the progress of these petitions and that I think the petitioners have done by but tardy justice to themselves in signing them. I am, dear sir, with cordial regard, faithfully yours, Charles Dickens. Oh, I love a layered salutation. Absolutely. He's great at these. <laughs> it's amazing. I am several things in a row divided by commas, Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens. I love it. <laughs> it's so him. It's so spot on. <laughs> It's amazing. Clay does take these petitions to Congress on March 30th, and it was then referred to the committee of the committee on the judiciary for a report. Ultimately, no report was filed and the whole affair kind of fell off the congressional radar for a very hot minute. Charles continued to fight the battle, but no real success would come during his lifetime. Mm -mm. Big bummer. Yeah. I've called this next section a brief break for leisure. Nice. <laughs> yes. So this one, this one just makes me laugh. This one makes my heart happy. This is what I like when we were talking earlier about how we're missing out on something from not doing this. Mm-hmm. These are the kinds of letters I want to write. Yes. Like if I had lived in the 1800s, this 100% would be a letter that I would have written. It's a letter to a best friend inviting them to dinner, telling them about a wine I bought to share, (laughs) planning our next vacay together. Yeah. Yes. So here it is. My dear Beard, I have been thinking about a breast of venison next Sunday at half past five and about making the Falstaffic F... Read in the evening our passage out, which I have just finished writing. What do you say? (laughs) Kate begs her love to your sister Catherine and desires me to say that she counts upon seeing her along with you. Mind to give that message. (laughs) (laughs) It's so cute. It's so good. (laughs) I have, at present, some port wine called Croft's London Particular. It's worthy of notice. It's worthy of it's notice. It's worthy of notice. <laughs> Hashtag it's worthy of it's notice. It's worthy of notice. <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> the broad stairs arrangements being now concluded, I beg you give notice that I have taken last year's house at Broadstairs for the months of August and September. Make your arrangements accordingly, but don't chip such a small piece as a week out of the baronet. Cut a slice from him. <laughs> Always, my dear beard. Heartily yours, Charles Dickens. Heartily yours. I love all of his salutations. (laughs) They're so good. I just, I love that. I want more of this. I want to send you a letter that says, hey, I bought this wine. It's good. (laughs) We're going to start sending each other the longest text messages. (laughs) It's going to be so good. I'm going to sign them with at least five lines of a salutation. This is, this is the... 
start of something new. It's the start of something truly great. Every time you might use an emoji, you have to say something sassy in four words. Perfect. This is happening. That's a great challenge. I'm so excited. <laughs> Get excited. We'll report back next week. <clears throat> Please purchase our book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Please purchase something. I got involved in some sort of TikTok thing about oh. people who are publishing directly to Kindle. I'm all the time like, could I quit my job if I did this? <laughs> so I'm American, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> these people are designing covers to um, composition notebooks. Oh. And then uploading them to Amazon. And obviously, I didn't pay attention to the whole video. I don't know if people then can buy a full composition notebook or if they just buy a print i don't know i don't know i don't know what they're purchasing but these crazy people on the internet are making a ton of money i want to do that and i was like i can make that i could do that but now there's like seven million of us so Mm. it's all over from yeah i think you missed the boat on that one unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) it was a good idea though but who would have thought of it you know what i should make composition (laughs) notebooks I thought they all just look like fuzzy TV screens in different colors. (laughs) Isn't that what it is? That's them, but they have cute patterns. When you're creative, it's just pink. Yeah. Mm. Instead of black or blue. Yeah. Are you ready for the next section? Yes. I've titled this section, Ooh, Ghost. That's so dumb. (laughs) Okay. So anyone who knows our friend Charles knows he loved himself a good ghost story. Yes. It was evident in his writing. Think of Christmas Carol. Think the Pickwick Papers. The Haunted Man. Really think any of the writings of Charles Dickens and you probably aren't going to be hard pressed to find a mention of a ghost somewhere. Miss Havisham was spooky as hell. Absolutely. Even though she wasn't dead. Right? Whether or not his skeptical brain truly believed he could be haunted, Charles found himself fascinated by ghosts ever since he was a child after regularly being told ghost stories by his nursemaid. Oh, he had a spooky nanny. He had a spooky nanny. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. He wrote that once he told the nanny that he might not quite be ready for this level of spooky, (laughs) but apparently she disagreed. She's like, you got it. Suck it up. Charles Charles said, her name was Mercy, though she had none on me. Ah, Charles! <laughs> so good. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> oh, my God. Emily Dunbar, a curator at the Charles Dickens Museum in London, expounds on this idea. She says he was fascinated, but we like to term him a fascinated skeptic. Although he was really interested in ghosts, I wouldn't say he really believed in their existence, but he loved the idea of people being scared of ghost stories. <laughs> and of course, the Victorians were so spooky. Oh, so spooky. <laughs> so spooky. It's ridiculous. <laughs> According to one letter, Charles was positively gleeful one evening after reading a, after a reading of his book when one of the attendees was, quote, undisguisedly sobbing and crying on the sofa as I read. <laughs> <laughs> He's just delighted. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> so it stands to reason that as someone who has an interest in at the very least seeing other people get scared as hell that charles would love the idea of a haunted house and according to correspondence yes yes he did <laughs> in a letter that he wrote to spiritualist and fellow writer william howitt on halloween nights <laughs> he asks for quote 
any haunted house whatsoever within the limits of the United Kingdom where nobody can live, eat, drink, stand, lie, or sleep without spirit molestation. Ooh. Turns out he had just the guy to take there, his friend John Hollingshead. Williams did give him a list of places to try out, one of which being an inn in the city of Holborn. But once the two got there, the whole location ended up being a big fucking bummer. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Nothing haunted about it. It was just run down and sad. These two apparently attempted to visit another haunted spot in the area, but they ended up not being able to find it at all. Oh, no GPS. Yes. Yeah. That's a bummer. Truly. I wouldn't have found the creepy cemetery had I not had GPS. So I get it. It's mm-hmm. tough. It's hard to get haunted these days. It is hard to get haunted these <laughs> days. <laughs> all right. We're getting into Charles' married life now. Here we go. All right. Charles' love life was an interesting one for the 1800s. Charles met the first love of his life, Maria, in 1830. Ah, to be 18 and in love. He's 18 years old right now. As with most young love, the whole thing ends up pretty poorly. It just ended in utter disaster. Mm -hmm. Jump to five years later, and Charles ultimately finds the woman of his matrimonial dreams, Catherine Hogarth. Is that how you say her last name? I don't know her. I can never remember. Cool, though. That's his wife. The two are engaged in 1835 and tie the knot in April of 1836. Early married life for the two seemed happy. They honeymooned in Kent, and then they came home to Furnival's Inn and got busy, literally. Ooh. (laughs) A year later, they're moving to a new home in London because first baby of 10 is uh, here. 10? 10 children. Holy moly. But life doesn't stay easy for them. In the same year, Charles' brother Frederick and Catherine's 17-year-old baby sister Mary move in with them. And Charles grew pretty attached to Mary, and it absolutely crushed him when she died in his arms not long after she had moved in. Oh no. Right? Grief struck so hard that Charles missed the deadline for an installment of the Pickwick Papers as well as Oliver Twist. Over the course of 20 years, the two continued to build their family, travel, move, host parties— But as the years pass, time and distance definitely are not making the heart grow fonder for Charles. Oof. By 18... Fond enough to make 10 babies. Uh, For fucking real, though. And this is where I'm going to be like, Charles... I'm angry at you. It's fine. (laughs) We're in a fight. We are in a fight. (laughs) (laughs) By 1855, it's pretty obvious to him that he's not happy. And honestly, he's a bit of an ass about it. So here are some of his complaints. He's not stoked about the fact that he has 10 kids to take care of, something that apparently is totally Catherine's fault. Because that makes sense. Um, that's not possible. It takes two. <laughs> it takes two. Charles, I of know. all the things you understand. Mm. Also, number two, apparently Catherine lacked an air of energy about her. Maybe she had it's ten because kids. she's taking care of your fucking ten kids, Charles. Jesus Christ. While you're writing 60 letters a day. Right? Jesus. <laughs> Minimum, usually. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And the third. He said that she was never his equal intellectually. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But either way, fucking ouch, Charles. She can't even remember what he looks like. All she can see when she thinks of him is a piece of paper in front of his head. Yeah. Because he's just reading letters all day long. This is him. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh, so that's up. mean, Charles. Right. 
We really get a look into his mindset in a letter that he wrote to his friend John Forster. So here's what he says. Poor Catherine and I are not made for each other, and there is no help for it. It is not only that she makes me uneasy and unhappy, but that I make her so too, and much more so. She is exactly what you know in the way of being amiable and complying, but we are strangely ill-assorted for the bond there is between us. God knows she would have been a thousand times happier if she had married another kind of man, and that her avoidance of this destiny would have been at least equally good for both of us. What is now befalling me, I have seen steadily coming ever since the days you remember when Mary was born. And I know too well that you cannot, no one can, help me. Why I have written, I hardly know. But it is a miserable sort of comfort that you should be clearly aware of how matters stand. The mere mention of the fact without any complaint or blame of any sort is a relief to my present state of spirits. And I can only get this from you because I can speak of it to no one else. I mean, everybody deserves to be able to talk about what's hard for them. Right. But that's sad. That is really sad. With all of this discontent festering, Charles accepts an invitation from former love interest Maria to meet up. Oh. She's currently Mrs. Henry Winter. Oh. Yeah. The rosy lens of time apart mixed with resentment towards his current partner. It just seemed like a nice option for a second. But. As most of us who have at some point in our lives tried to reconnect with an ex have experienced, the whole thing ended up being a bit of a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, they didn't work out and we are all shocked. Oh, I forgot about that weird thing you do with your bottom lip. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Huh. Not, not a selling point for you. Yeah. <laughs> not great. Bummer. <laughs> In 1857, the final nail in the coffin for Charles and Catherine's marriage comes in the form of an 18-year-old actress named Helen Ellen Turnin. Charles is 45 at this point. Charles. Charles. Ellen comes to work on a benefit presentation of The Frozen Deep, sponsored by Charles himself, and Charles is actually co-starring in the production. <laughs> I think this is my most conservative opinion, <laughs> that maybe the age of consent should be like 21. Yeah. Am I an asshole? I don't know. I just feel like it's balance of power for That's, me. Yes. That's all it is. If you're going to let a 45-year-old at a person, they should they should be in their 20s. Yeah. Mins. So they have some ability to make an educated choice. Right. <sighs> That's a bummer. Well, at this point, Charles was quite the smitten kitten, and he buys a bracelet for Ellen. But he pulls a major whoops when he sends the bracelet addressed to Ellen to his wife instead. Is he a Hallmark movie? I think he might be. No one actually does that. Nobody does that, Charles. What are you doing? I'm the only person I know who actually sends texts to the wrong people. Yeah. I can't believe that he did that. He did that. Oh, my gosh. Catherine is understandably pissed. And doesn't yeah. believe for one second the excuse that Charles gives, which is, but I buy all of the people I work with jewelry. It's totally fine. Oh, my gosh. We all know you're poor, <laughs> Charles. Charles. You Charles. can't afford it. No. What are you doing? <laughs> I was hoping he was going to say, I just wrote it wrong, Elizabeth. I know your name's Ellen. Wait, his mom's name's Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. That doesn't even count. No, it doesn't. Her name's Catherine. Catherine's not anything like Ellen. No, not even close. <laughs> he's never getting out of that so he thinks it's totally fine it's not fine <laughs> and Catherine and Charles <laughs> officially separate in 1857 
something that just wasn't done at the time by public figures. So this is a big deal. Was he picking a fight so she would do it? I don't know. I wonder. I wonder. That feels like a dramatic situation he might find himself in. Mm -hmm. I could see it. In an attempt to keep the rumor mill from coming up with their own stories of what happened, Charles put an announcement about the separation in the London Times and Household Words. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and here's what he wrote. Oh, it's not going to be good. No. <laughs> Some domestic trouble of mine, of long standing, on which I will make no further remark than it claims to be respected as being of a sacredly private nature, has lately been brought to an arrangement which involves no anger or ill will of any kind, and the whole origin, progress, and surrounding circumstances of which have been throughout with the knowledge of my children. It is amicably composed, and its details have now to be forgotten by those concerned in it. It was a weird thing. He just went on. Basically, he's saying, this is a private situation. Keep your nose out of it. We're all trying to forget it. We all know, but you don't. Yeah. Does, he hasn't seen Alexander Hamilton's no. letter, has he? No. Because when he did that, uh, it was bad. Yeah. It doesn't work out very well. Oh, my gosh. So Charles and Ellen remained together for the rest of his life. Catherine and Charles definitely didn't stay on pleasant terms. No. She keeps the house and custody of the eldest son. And she never truly seems to recover from the breakup. Charles moves and takes the remaining children with him because, you know, he loved having that many kids. Um, oddly enough, Catherine's sister, Georgina, who was living with the couple at the time, stays with Charles to help take care of the children. It's a wild situation. That's weird. Right? <laughs> this is, does this have something to do with the spooky nanny? I don't know. This is strange. It's setup. wild, right? When you said custody of the oldest child, I thought perhaps he had special needs or something. But they just split their children, one here, nine yeah. there. So apparently, like, it was never like Charles discouraged his kids from going to see Catherine and, like, be with her. But it was never really encouraged either. How interesting. It was wild. It was an interesting, it was an interesting read. Hmm. I call this next section a brief break for drama. Yeah, because <laughs> the stuff from before was just very chill. It was just so chill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes, Liz, the mail doesn't make it. It just happens. Like the Postal Service promises they're going to be here, rain, shine, snow, whatever. But sometimes shit just happens. Mm. But Charles, like we talked about in the beginning, found reading and responding to letters sent to him to be of extreme importance. And he was receiving, as we said, as many as 80 letters a day. So one day missed is kind of a big deal. That's so many letters. That's so many letters. But Charles definitely becomes a whole diva about it. <laughs> Where are my letters? <laughs> Where are they? Um, so he sends a letter to mailman extraordinaire I.H. Newman on February 10th, 1866. And this is what he has to say. Does the mailman have to pick it up and take it to himself? I think so. Okay. I think so. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I beg to say that I most decidedly and strongly object to the infliction of any such inconvenience upon myself. 
There are many people in this village of Hyam, probably, who do not receive or dispatch in a year as many letters as I usually receive and dispatch in a day. That feels like facts. It does. I am on the best terms with my neighbors, poor and rich, and I believe they would be sorry to lose me. I should be so hampered by the proposed restriction that I think it would force me to sell my property here and leave this part of the country. Because of one day? Because of one day of mail that's just not going to make it. Oh my goodness. I know. My neighbors, poor and rich... (laughs) I don't know why I'm bringing that into this. I don't know why this is coming up, but it is. They'd be mad also. Oh, what a weirdo. (laughs) I know. It's just one day. Go to bed in the morning. More letters. It's fine. (laughs) It's fine. You're going to have a bunch. It's going to be fun. All right. We're going to get into the kind of philanthropic side of his life now. Mm Mm-hmm. In May of 1846, a woman named Angela Burdett Coots comes to Charles with a proposition. As the heiress... To the large Coots Bank fortune, she wanted to attempt to do some good with her money. The plan was to set up a home for the fallen woman in the area, which means that she wanted a place where women working in the sex industry could come and live and reform their lives. Cool. Yes. The idea was to make a change from the primary focus of the day on punishment and turn it into a focus on education, training, and gaining skills in all things domestic. Okay. Yeah. The goal was either to help the woman get married or to help the woman move to a new place. I mean, those were the ways for women to be successful. Pretty much. Makes sense. It took a little convincing, but Charles agrees to the plan and helps found the Urania College. He runs the college for 10 years, setting the rules, handling the money, interviewing the woman who wanted to be residents there. Over these 10 years, Angela and Charles exchanged a large number of letters including topics of day-to-day issues and, of course, shenanigans. Nice. So, Charles can sound like kind of an ass in some of these, and he can sound really nice in some of these, depending on how you read it. So, like a regular person, I guess. Pretty much. So, in a letter that he wrote to Angela on May 26, 1846, he kind of talks about what the purpose of this place should be. He says, A woman or girl coming to the asylum, it is explained to her that she has come there for useful repentance and reform. And because her past way of life has been dreadful in its nature and consequences and full of affliction, misery, and despair to herself. Never mind society while she is at that pass. Society has used her ill and turned her away from and turned away from her, and she cannot be expected to take much heed of its rights or wrongs. In a second letter that is dated November 3rd, 1842, he talks about the idea of kind of using kindness over force with the people who are there. So he says, and I, this one that I'm, I get it, it's the time. These unfortunate creatures are to be tempted to virtue. They cannot be dragged, driven, or frightened. And then later in in the letter, he says, I have laid in all the dresses and linen of every sort for the whole house. I have made them as cheerful in appearance as they reasonably could be, at the same time very neat and modest. He... He was in their dresses and linens? He's trying to give them clothes. So he's not in them. Oh. He's providing them. <laughs> it's like, he, why was he laying in their dresses? He, he was. Because he, words. Words. <laughs> this, this one's a whole situation. I was concerned. That's fair. He's not in them. He's giving them. He's providing them. This last one that he has with Angela is the, from the 17th of April, 1850. And he says, my dear Miss Coots, last night, Mrs. Morrison being out and Mrs. McCartney not being at home, the very bad and false subject, Jemima Hiscock, forced open the door of the little beer cellar with knives and drank until she was dead drunk. (laughs) 
<laughs> she used the most horrible language and made a very repulsive exhibition of herself. <laughs> uh, she induced Mary Joins to drink the beer with her. Nice. And that young lady was also drunk, but stupidly and drowsily. <laughs> Well, you have to take your turns. You have to take your turns. It is what it is. You can't be a belligerent every time. Not every single time. Sometimes you're just sleepy. That's me a lot of the times. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We're going to get to his last letter, and I'm going to kind of talk about what his life was like leading up to his last letter. So in 1868 and 1869, Charles planned his own farewell tour. His plan was to travel around England, Scotland, and Ireland, where he would sit with the people and have farewell readings, quote, of his works. Things weren't necessarily going according to the plan, though. In April of 1869, Charles had a stroke, and then four days later, he collapsed and made the determination that he needed to cancel the rest of the tour. He goes back home and begins work on what would be his final novel, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. The night before he dies... Charles writes what is to be his last letter, at least that we can find. It's addressed to his friend Charles Kent, and in it he makes plans to meet up the next day. Oh, bless him. He says, my dear Kent, tomorrow is a very bad day for me to make a call as, in addition to my usual office business, I have a mass of accounts to settle with wills. But I hope I may be ready for you at three o'clock. If I can't be, why then I shan't be. You must really get rid of these opal enjoyments. They are too overpowering. These violent delights have violent ends. I think it was a father of your church who made the wise remark to a young gentleman who got up early or stayed out late at Verona. (laughs) Ever affectionately, Charles Dickens. He died of a stroke on June 9th, 1870 and is now buried in the Poets' Corner of Westminster Abbey. The epitaph printed for his funeral read, To the memory of Charles Dickens, England's most popular author, who died at his residence near Rochester, Kent, 9 June 1870, aged 58 years. He was a sympathizer with the poor, the suffering, and the oppressed, and by his death, one of England's greatest writers is lost to the world. All I can ask is that in my very last letter, I quote Shakespeare. Right? (laughs) What a wonderful history of letters. Right? It was an interesting read this week. Yeah. And funny. He's funny. (laughs) He's dramatic. I've always thought he was funny, but I'm glad that it's not just prepared humor, that he was just casually funny also. Right. That's very enjoyable. I loved it. (laughs) I loved it. It was a fun week this week. I'm so glad. We're going to come back for a Christmas carol. So go and trim your quills and practice your capital cursive F's. And we'll see you in a minute. Are you ready to do a Christmas carol? Always. Ooh, did I say a Christmas story when we um, went to the break? I might have. They're both a fun time. They're great. (laughs) One's a little different than the other. It's true. They're not quite the same. (laughs) One has more bunnies. That's true. (laughs) This one's a Christmas carol. Here we go. The fourth of eight Christmas stories written by Charles Dickens. A Christmas carol in prose being a ghost story of Christmas. (laughs) That's the whole title. I love it so much. (laughs) Was published on December 19th of 1843 and was sold out by Christmas Eve. Oh, my God. At the end of the next year, 13 editions had been released. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. And he was still poor. And that's why copyright laws are important. Absolutely. (laughs) I was thinking while you were talking about how he was publishing a lot of his novels, like, um... 
what do they call it? Like episodically installments. Installments. Yeah. Um, there's a thing on Kindle Unlimited or Kindle. It's on my Kindle, but I forget what it's called. But it's you can't read it on your Kindle. You have to read it on the Kindle app on your phone. Oh my god! You have to buy coins and then you pay for the installments as the writer puts them out. Oh, it's very interesting. I think it makes books really expensive. That does, but kind of fun for the writers. I imagine. Right? I'm to, sure it does to hear feedback as they're still writing. Yeah. So that's cool. It's something we haven't done in a long time. Truly. It's been a hot minute. It was a banger out of the gates. And so lots of publishing help houses started copying it. Okay. Dickens sued and then um, the publishers would just go bankrupt. So he wouldn't see the money for the copies that they sold. Oh, shit. So they wouldn't have to pay. It was a huge deal. That's very, so very dumb. big problem. Yeah, it's a huge deal. <laughs> Um, in 1849, he took the show on the road and started go- doing public readings and people loved it. And Ticketmaster was not involved. Thank God. Um, so the tour went on until, <laughs> as you were saying, my, my notes said until 1870, but I mean, obviously 1869. I, he, so he kind of did continue. It was like did officially, he, like it was officially done in 69. But then like once he started feeling better, he kind of went out for little stints here and there. Who wouldn't? That makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, he put on 127 performances of A Christmas Carol, and the brilliant work has never spent a moment out of print. It's amazing. Isn't that? It's brilliant. It's so good. <laughs> According to the internet, there have been 21 live action film adaptations, including the new one this year that we're going to watch <laughs> with, um, what's his cute face? Ryan Reynolds. Yes. Um, 11 animated films, a bazillion TV versions, a handful that went straight to DVD. Mm. Those are the tiny, shiny plastic discs that people hang in their fruit trees so the birds don't eat their peaches. Truly. That's a DVD. Mm-hmm. Radio productions, recordings, including an audible version read by Hugh Grant that I really, really liked. Ooh. It was wonderful. So that it, sounds nice. He did such a great job. He wasn't like overly theatrical about it. He was just nice and yeah. it was really enjoyable. Um, operas, ballets, graphic novels, comic strips, parodies, and t- TV series episodes, including but not limited to Bewitched, Star Trek The Next Generation, Xena Warrior Princess. Shut up. No. Doctor Who, The Simpsons, which Seth Taylor wanted me to mention for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Barbie, where Barbie plays a female Scrooge. Oh. <laughs> and the Powerpuff Girls. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> Video games, a podcast, and a litany of novels inspired by the Carol's characters. Oh. So it lives on. Within Dickens' lifetime, he witnessed his characters and their traditions entering the zeitgeist. The food and drinks, games, dances, and celebrations from A Christmas Carol have become ubiquitous. Perhaps the most obvious being a Scrooge. (laughs) A Scrooge is a grump with no Christmas spirit. So me. You can skip the name calling and just grumble, bah humbug, (laughs) like Scrooge did. And people know exactly what you're talking about. Completely. People who don't like twinkle lights. Wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. Everyone likes twinkle lights. Um, Doesn't everybody? Replace that with something else. Mm stockings okay people who don't like stockings mm. bah humbug them. yes <laughs> don't like twinkle lights who doesn't like twinkle what lights silly thought the book itself uh technically a novella because it's little it's just a little guy 
is divided into five staves, which is actually the name of um, like the stav or staff in music with the five lines okay. and four spaces that you use to write music on. Yeah. Um, rather than acts or chapters. Okay. But I'm sure that it was nice that he divided them up into nice succinct acts because it's been performed on stage so many times. It makes things so easy. Perfect. Stav one, I've entitled Ebenezer Scrooge is a huge jerk. Mm, mm-hmm. Uh, you've probably all heard, you've watched one of the movies, you've seen Kermit and everybody, um, but you listen to it again <laughs> because it's so, it's so wonderful. So I'm going to talk to you about it and then you're going to immediately want to go find it somewhere else and watch it or read it or listen to it again. Yes. It's just very lovely. So Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge is a huge jerk. Seven years after Jacob Marley, Scrooge's business partner died, Scrooge is fully terrorizing everyone unfortunate enough to associate with him. He hates Christmas, refuses to give a donation to some men who are gathering money for the poor, is a booger and a bully to his clerk, Bob Cratchit, and won't go to any dinner at his nephew's invitation, even though Fred is his only living family. Thank you. When he gets home on the night of Christmas Eve, things are starting to get spooky. Ooh. One of my favorite images from the whole story is the knocker on the door. Yes. It turns into Jacob Marley's face. I love that so much. It's so good. Can you, you get one of those on Etsy? I hope so. We, I, we, we should get one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Inside his house, Scrooge is visited by the ghost of his friend Marley, and the news is bad. Mm. Marley is draped in chains and money boxes, tangled and tied up by the greed and grossness that he exhibited during his life. Ah. And and maybe had a toothache. Or is that how they bury people? Oh, I don't know. Oh, he had that, you know, he has the thing tied around his Yeah, I was chin. wondering that too. So his mouth doesn't go, blah, maybe. Dead. Is that a thing? I don't know. Victorians were weird. So Truly. I'll look it up for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, he's got one of those. Marley tells Scrooge that tonight he'll be visited by three spirits and Scrooge can avoid his fate, matching chains, but bigger because Scrooge is awful and still being awful, mm-hmm. if he takes this one chance to learn. Stab two. Ooh. A gender fluid candle head brings up old shit. Perfect. Here we go. At midnight, the ghost of Christmas past, who is always played by a pretty lady in reenactments, but is described by Dickens as like a child, yet not so like a child as like an old man. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but tiny like a child because of magic, hazy perception of no particular gender with long white hair, a white gown and quote, a bright, clear jet of light springing from the crown of its head. Hmm. Like a creepy Victorian matchstick girl, Lumiere. After they've been given a bath and clean but weird clothes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's where we are. Uh, So they shine their light on the shadows of Scrooge's memories to show him Christmas's past. That's how that works. I mean, that's how that goes. Yeah. (laughs) Magic. That's amazing. Um, I did read something that said that Victorians often believed that ghosts could tell you things. Okay. um, Including about your death. Spooky. I know. Ghosts. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> right. Accessories for ethereal non-binary fire scout Barbie include a sparkly glitter belt, a sprig of fresh holly in its hand, summer flowers to trim the white robe, and a cap under its arm that looks like a candle putter outer. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
The mysteriously strong but delicate candlestick in a dress shows Scrooge a memory of himself as a boy at school. All the other boys leave to go home for Christmas holiday and he stays behind. But unlike Harry Potter, does not defeat the bad guy. He's just there alone. Yeah. Then he ages up to um, the Christmas that his sister, Fan, comes to the school to bring him home. And it's also depressing because she's like, one time our dad was being nice to me and I finally felt brave enough to ask if you could come back. So you can come home with us now because our dad's not being mean. It's real sad. It's so sad. Real sad. (laughs) My heart. Yeah. Um, Seeing his sister take Scrooge from defensive to slightly open. The next Christmas memory is from Scrooge's time as an apprentice. Mr. Fezziwig. Dickens characters have the best names. So good. Fezziwig. Oh my God. Mr. Fezziwig has them stop work and clear the shop where he and his wife throw a Christmas party for all of their employees. Oh. And Scrooge gets caught up in the joy of it all. Spooky Birthday Candle says, a small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude because ghosts are big into reverse psychology, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as we know. Um, all he did was spend a couple of books and BD. <laughs> and this gets the reaction that they were definitely going for from Scrooge. And he says, it isn't that. It isn't that spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. And it's like, Scrooge. Mm. So then he thinks to himself, oh, I see. Uh-huh. <laughs> I am likewise an employer. Oh, <laughs> it's all coming together. And the candle lady's like, what's up? Or candle person. And he's like. I just kind of wish I could talk to Bob, my clerk. (laughs) It's feeling bad. Yeah. The last memory is of Belle. Scrooge was engaged to her. They hooked up when they were both broke. Hooked up in the Victorian way, not, Mm -hmm. not the now way. But Scrooge got caught up in becoming something he thought was better. Something other people would think was better. And Belle knew she wasn't his main squeeze anymore. Scrooge loved his money and his aspirations more than he loved her. And he didn't even try to be like all Jenny from the block about it. Damn it. Past Scrooge was like, yeah, money is super cool. So I'm going to do that. Bye. And she just walks away. Oh. Current Scrooge is sad. As he should be. Yeah. It's all too heavy now. So Scrooge yells, take me back. Haunt me no longer. And he uses the little candle hat to put out the nondescript, but also very descript, ghost's flame fascinator. (laughs) And then um, after every, there's, well, you you obviously know there's three spirits who visit. That's Uh what Marley told us. After every one, he finds himself back in bed Uh and then wakes up again. So we're back in bed for staff, staff three. Hagrid uses children to manipulate Scrooge, but he's not wrong. (laughs) Here we go. Holiday Hagrid, the ghost of Christmas present, appeared sitting on a throne of dinner. Ooh. Quote, turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brown, or sorry, brawn. Some kind of meat. I don't actually know. Great sucking pigs, long wreaths of sausage. That sounds kind of pretty, actually. It does. Mince pies. Juicy oranges, luscious pears, seething bowls of punch. I just picked the ones that were fun to say. It's a giant pile of food. For sure. There's so much there. 
The mayor of Meat Mountain wore a deep green robe bordered with white fur, but Angel Moroni style, uh-huh. open at the chest, <laughs> bare feet, a holly wreath on his head with shining icicles hanging from it, which sounds so pretty. It does. Luscious, long brown curls in his hair and a generally Santa Claus vibe. He was joyful and very large. He, every rendition I've seen, yes. He's, 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 he's Hagrid. He's like giant. Mm-hmm. He was accoutered, remember that? Uh-huh. <laughs> as follows, with an antique scabbard at his waist, but no sword, and a torch in the shape of a horn that he held up high to light the room. Oh. The last ghost had Scrooge all up in his feels, so mm-hmm. he is like nervous right this is a whole situation now so he walks in like walter when i know he's done something <laughs> naughty won't won't look up yeah just like avoids eye contact i can't see you mm-hmm. it's not it didn't happen no <laughs> <laughs> he is a bit wary <laughs> understandably mm-hmm. so but he says to the jolly giant that he's willing to learn what the spirit has to teach him Deep-conditioned daddy in a bathrobe takes Scrooge for a walk outside on Christmas morning. (laughs) They walk through the market and see people celebrating and shopping for Christmas dinner. Scrooge sees that even though people have to work hard jobs or they don't have a lot of money for fancy dinner things, they are still joyful. They have a happiness and playfulness on their faces and in their mannerisms that comes from the spirit of Christmas. There's a cute little part where he's talking about the guys who are like sweeping snow off of roofs. Yeah. And how they'll stop and throw snowballs at each other. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and they laugh when they miss. And then they laugh when they hit. Yeah. <laughs> and it just sounds like Christmas. That is, that, that's what it is. It that's it really exactly. Nice. <laughs> the loose robed horn holder takes Scrooge <laughs> to a whole bunch of different Christmas celebrations. Ooh. They see miners, um, fellows in a lighthouse, parentheses, would read that romance novel, Mm -hmm. Bob Cratchit's family, and his nephew Fred's shindig. Everywhere they go, the spirit shakes his torch over their doorway to give them his blessing. Oh, isn't that nice? That's really nice. The Cratchits are poor, as we know. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's on Scrooge. Absolutely. But their home is full of love, and that's on Bob and Mrs. Cratchit who are truly lovely and also Kermit and Miss Piggy. Truly. That's all it will ever be. I don't even care, honestly. Mm -mm. That's it. Uh, They have a handful of kids to take care of and Tiny Tim, who walks with a tiny crutch and a brace on his leg. Lumberjack Santa says that Tim will die if things don't change, which devastates Scrooge. Mm -hmm. As it should. It's super sad. Yeah. At Fred's house, remember that's his nephew. Yeah. uh, They have a merry dinner and dance. There's an impressive flirt during a game of blind man's bluff, which I have decided is the suck and blow of the Victorian era. Uh 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 (laughs) It's just eyes closed. I need to feel this to know if it's you. Oh, my God. (laughs) And then when it's somebody else's turn, those two disappear behind a curtain. Of course. (laughs) Still just feeling things out, I imagine. They're just playing the game. It's fine. It's just it's it's good sportsmanship is (laughs) what that is. Yeah. Uh, and some lighthearted trash talk about Fred's grumpy Scrooge of an uncle, Scrooge. Scrooge. Uh, Fred, who is definitely the Mr. Bingley of this story, mm. you know, just like so sweet. Yeah. Um, the literal sweetest. He <laughs> says, yeah, he's super grumpy, but I'm going to keep inviting him and he'll always be welcome here. Uh, they play some games and Scrooge, um, who the party cannot see or hear. So they, nobody can ever see him. Mm-hmm. 
um, gets so caught up that he yells out answers, which, according to Seth Taylor, is cheating even if you're right. That feels, so, that feels true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thought I'd mention that for mm-hmm. you guys. Mm-hmm. The president of the Vidal Sassoon Motorcycle Club. That's the spirit of Christmas present. Is noticeably. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you see that it? That took a second and I'm seeing it. That's. Uh-huh. I got really caught up on his shiny hair, honestly. There's a lot. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, he's noticeably aging throughout their journey, and he tells Scrooge that his life will only last for this one day. While looking over the spirit and bumming out over his short life, Scrooge sees two children, a boy and a girl, beneath Holiday Hagrid's robe. They were, um, it says, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate, too, in their humility. The spirit explains that they are ignorance and want. Mm. So um, Scrooge says, spirit, are they yours? And he says, they are man's um, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance. This girl is want. Have they no refuge or resource? And then the spirit says, are there no prisons? (laughs) Said the spirit, turning on him for the last time with his own words. Are there no workhouses? Oof. He's mocking Scrooge with his own super dumb reply to the men who came asking for donations for the poor the day before. Mm -hmm. Um, My least favorite food is eating my own words. (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) They always taste horrible and they give me an awful stomach ache. Truly. And I feel like Scrooge feels the same. I don't think he enjoys it. It's yucky. Yeah, it's gross. <clears throat> and now, stab four, the Grim Reaper, the silent treatment, and someone else's bedsheets. Perfect. Here we go. At the last stroke of 12, the witching hour begins, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come appears. It says, shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing visible save one outstretched hand. <laughs> So dark, it nearly blended into the dark and mist surrounding it. Quote, a solemn phantom draped and hooded coming like a mist along the ground towards him. Scrooge feared the silent shape so much that his legs trembled beneath him and he found that he could hardly stand when he prepared to follow it. I feel like that would be me. This one's scary. I'd be scared as hell. Death with stage effects was so scary, faux show, and without speaking, shows Scrooge his death and the reactions of the people who knew him. Hmm. But Scrooge, because he's daft or too emotionally ramped up to perceive it, doesn't realize that everyone's talking about him. Ah. Scrooge witnesses a funeral sparsely attended by businessmen who were promised a free lunch. And the laundress, chairwoman, and undertaker selling the bed curtains taken from the dead man's bed and other stolen possessions at Joe's Rag and Bone Shop, which is a Victorian word for pawn shop. Perfect. Everyone seems so indifferent or relieved at the man's death, and Scrooge asks for the fabric storm cloud with a hand to show him some death (laughs) that isn't so horribly sad. I don't mean to laugh. I just love your names are great. (laughs) (laughs) The dark's pile of sordid laundry shows Scrooge the Cratchits mourning the loss of their tiny Tim. And it's so sad. Finally, Scrooge is taken to a grave and he kind of flips. 
says, before I draw near to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they shadows of things that may be only? Linus's blanket says nothing. <laughs> when Scrooge sees his own name on the headstone, he falls to pieces. Spirit, he cried, tight clutching at its robe. Hear me, I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been for this for this intercourse. Gosh, his writing is tricky to read out loud. It is tricky. I will not be the man I must have been for this intercourse. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Now Scrooge knows what will become of him and the people around him if he doesn't change the way he lives his life. And that's the end of that stab. <sighs> Ooh, that's a that's a it's sad. rough one. It's I can't sad. imagine what I would do if I was taken to my own gravesite and said, after hearing everything and seeing everything else, this is what you got. You're the piece of trash. Mm -hmm. There's one point where he's like, isn't there anybody who's happy about this man? Like, can't you show me anybody? And he goes to this couple who's glad that he died because they have a little bit longer to pay off their debt. Mm. Yep. And he's like, this really this sucks. sucks. <laughs> this is not good. Stab five, Ebenezer Scrooge is Marty McFly. <laughs> when Scrooge wakes in the morning, he yells out the window and asks a boy what day it is and finds he hasn't missed it. It's Christmas Day and he has a chance to change his miserable life. Yay. <laughs> He's so happy he can't believe it. He says, I'm as light as a feather. I am as happy as an angel. I am as merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. A Merry Christmas to everybody. A Happy New Year to the, all the world. Which is very similar to Elizabeth gambling in Las Vegas when she says, <laughs> ginger ales all around. <laughs> everybody on eight. <laughs> And tables of grown men are like, well, everybody. And then they all put their things on eight. Huh. Sometimes we win. Sometimes it happens. Not a lot. But occasionally. And then one time there's a lady at the other end of the roulette table drinking something very blue. Ooh. And she was highly invested in everything we did. And when she ran out of money, her husband would walk by and give her more. Huh. It was nice. That sounds very nice. <laughs> she was having a great time. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and then he laughed. And this is one of my favorite quotes ever. It says, really, for a man who had been out of practice for so many years, it was a splendid laugh. A most illustrious laugh. The father of a long, long line of brilliant laughs. That's a really good line. <laughs> it really is. He's a good writer. It's true. Lucky for you. I'm here to tell you because otherwise no one would have known. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> He buys a huge turkey and sends it to the sends it to the Cratchits. He donates a bunch of money to the charity he sent away the day before. He walks the streets of London being cheerful and grateful and wishing everyone a very Merry Christmas. He spends the rest of the day at Fred's. They welcome him warmly and have a lovely day. Scrooge learns his lesson and keeps his word from before from the night before when he said, I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. The next day, he gives Kermit a raise. <laughs> he became close with his family and a second father to Tim. Tim lives because his family can afford to take care of him now. That helps. People say of Ebenezer Scrooge that if anyone knows how to celebrate and live the spirit of Christmas, it's him. 
then this I love. This applies to your whole life. Please remember this forever. Perfect. He says, some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh and little heeded them. For he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter in the outset. And knowing that as such, they would be blind anyway, he thought it quite as well that they should wrinkle up their eyes in grins, as have the malady in less attractive forms. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. I love that so much. It was very good. I guess um, just as a matter of course, I should say at this point, God bless us, everyone. It's <laughs> a requirement. <laughs> like you were telling us, I read a lot of things about how important it was to Charles Dickens to care for poor children. Yeah. In fact, before he wrote A Christmas Carol, he was going to write a political pamphlet called An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. And as a person who suffered greatly because he was the child of a poor man. Right. I think it was tenderly close to his heart. Absolutely. He spent a great deal of time trying to convince people to take care of the poor around them. Yeah. There was this one politician who was always trying to get the places that fed like shelters. Um, yeah. That would feed poor people on Sundays to close for the Sabbath. And he wrote this excellent scathing piece in the paper. Mm. It was like. Because he has three meals cooked for him every day, he probably doesn't understand what a hardship it is for other people to not be able to eat a meal mm -hmm. on the Sabbath. And it was like, ooh, <laughs> it's factual. Yes. Um, and that same, that politician, like he, he submitted that, I don't know what you call him in England, that bill. Yeah. He took the bill to the house. Like, what's that cartoon? How a bill becomes a law. Ooh. I can see it. I can yeah. see it walking up the steps. Yeah, he did that like three or four times and was like, they shouldn't get to eat on Sunday. And he also tried to ban other like simple pleasures for the poor that would take place on the Sabbath. It was such greedy nonsense. Seriously. Like none of those things would take anything away to him and his rich friends. Right. And allowing them didn't take anything away from them either. Exactly. It was just taking to take. That's all it is. And Charles Dickens, uh, he wrote to tell you what's up. I love it. He's, he's, uh, we all have weird personal lives. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. <laughs> but in, in his, in his writing fictionally and non-fictionally, he stood up for, for children who needed to be stood up for. And I love that. It's really what, Great Expectations, uh, was such an important book to me. Yeah. And I feel like all of his books, I haven't read all of them. I've read, uh, Great Expectations and I've read, um, the one with the really cute guy in the movie oh nicholas nickleby yeah and um obviously a christmas carol oh mm -hmm. and i have one i have bleak house that i've not read mm. but it's big that is a big one <laughs> um and i i think that he he just emphasized like the difference between how difficult it is to grow up without yeah and to like be at a party surrounded by people who have exactly and the, tr the struggles of children who are out of control who don't have control over their situations in life yeah and are subject to the adults around them and their choices whatever they might be yeah um, I think that those things were important to him so I was really I thought he was pretty overall overall net Charles Dickens positive yes and um 
What a what a lovely writer. Absolutely. Uh, Christmas Carol really is in prose. It's beautiful to listen to. Mm-hmm. Not as much when I read it. Uh, so it's, apparently, <laughs> it's very tough to read Charles Dickens out loud. Who you would know, have thought? As I'm typing it up, I'm like, that's not hard to say. <laughs> and then you actually say it. And it's like, oh. Then I got my mouth mm-hmm. involved. And yep, that's but, often where trouble starts. That's where it happens. <laughs> For me, every time. Every time. God damn it. Oh, <laughs> he's just... It's so good. There's a reason that classics endure the way they do. Mm-hmm. And it's so classic. It's it's amazing. So good. This year, we're going to watch Scrooged for the very first time. It's exciting. Get excited for us. <laughs> We've decided that we're going to watch all the versions of A Christmas Carol we can find. Um, <laughs> there's a lot. So we probably won't make it through all of them. But we're going to make an attempt. live action ones, and that's not even counting Kermit. It's a whole situation. Alive. Yeah. Wait, is that one live action because there's people Is that one live action because there's people? I don't know. I feel like that's a, like, that's a gray area yeah, i don't know I'd how they revisit the list. That. i'm curious seth was like are you gonna listen watch all the episode specials and i was like no no nope. that's too that's, that's too much too that's yeah but that's that's a lot <laughs> christmas <laughs> will be here and gone and truly <laughs> truly <laughs> okay well we want to celebrate some more of this lovely twinkle light time of year with you so we'll talk about it some more in some future episodes let's do this again sometime say hi to your mom for me 